The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. Whatever. I'm telling you now so you don't wonder later. Have I ever lied to you? No. And I'm not going to start now. So why bring it up? You know how it makes me feel. I'm a sensitive guy. Guy. <laughs> I'm the announcer for the Ellis Martin Report, and I'm okay with my feelings. Okay, on the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Welcome to this week's edition of the Ellis Martin Report. Today we'll chat with Adam Arnett, the Chief Marketing Officer of Noblest Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.to. Since we've introduced you to the company on this show, Noblest has seen a great deal of new shareholder interest, now nearing $5 a share. Just last Friday, the company saw 1.3 million shares traded. I'm very happy that our listeners have responded to this story of a company based in Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix that puts patient care and satisfaction before anything else. I've interviewed several company principals, and each one of them has stressed patient and consumer satisfaction as their number one priority. With that in mind, it's no wonder that they've seen great success, not just in the stock market, but where it really counts in bottom line revenue. What I've learned over the course of this past month through my interviews with management is that branding and marketing play a key role in bringing great service to a consumer of any product. Without brand awareness, it doesn't matter what your product or what your widget is. If no one knows about who you are or what you do, so what? This is a good point to take heart, not just for potential investors who listen to the program, but those of you that are in business or participate in running a business. Let your target market know who you are and provide them with excellent service. I will also speak with Greg Johnson, the CEO and president of Wellgreen Platinum, trading on the TSX under the symbol WG and on the OTCQX as WGPLF. Wellgreen Platinum has one of the largest open pit platinum, palladium, nickel, and copper resources in North America with some gold thrown in, I might add. In my interview with Greg, you'll learn why a recently completed study showed great potential for this company with an asset based in the Canadian Yukon, featuring great infrastructure and access to ports. Doug Diamond is the president of Gatekeeper Systems Incorporated. We'll speak with him. Gatekeeper trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GSI.V. Gatekeeper provides transportation-related security systems for school buses across North America. Additionally, the company serves law enforcement and the military with body camera solutions now critical in documenting incidents or potential incidents in the field. I'm a shareholder in Gatekeeper Systems. And I will begin a weekly rant. 
starting today on what I think about so-called financial experts and making predictions. We'll also get a useful lesson on productivity from motivational speaker and contributing editor Bob Lang. And now my interview with Adam Arnett of Noblest Health. Adam Arnett is the Chief Marketing Officer of Noblest Health Corporation, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.TO. Noblest Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of Ambulatory Surgical Centers, or ASCs, with a mission of providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower cost for healthcare delivery. Noblest, under its previous name Northstar Healthcare, recently acquired Athos Health for $34 million. Athos, based in Dallas, focused on the marketing and delivery of specialized healthcare services in seven states. Adam, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Glad to be here. Give us an idea, if you will, of your background as it relates specifically to marketing. My entire professional background has been rooted in direct-to-consumer marketing and sales, and really that started during college, but my first job out of college was with a national investment management company, and there we marketed direct-to-consumer and B2B as well services that the company offered. From there, I joined a national physician search firm called Merritt Hawkins and Associates. We're the nation's largest physician search and consulting firm. And that entire business was built around a direct to physician marketing as well as facilities. And we consulted with facilities and physician groups across the country. And from experience I learned throughout those years in marketing, specifically direct marketing, I started two real estate investment and finance companies, all built around generating leads directly from consumers. And so it's a pretty broad industry base that I come from, but I've been able to bring that knowledge along with some of my past healthcare knowledge into Nobilis Healthcare. What was the deciding factor in your decision to focus on healthcare? Part of it was the economy and part of it was I knew the CEO, Chris Lloyd. In fact, at the time, we both had real estate investment companies. The opportunity arose to start the Athos companies. Chris knew that I had background consulting and healthcare and physician groups along with that marketing experience and so we were able to join forces. How important is branding in your business? That's a great question, Ellis. Branding, I look at it two ways. There's the branding aspect that you see with the large healthcare organizations these days, the Baylors, the HCAs, who focus most of their effort on branding. We look at it a little bit differently and focus the majority of our efforts in the direct-to-consumer messaging. That is clearly our market. That's what our expertise is. And so though the brand comes along with it, we build that brand after the fact, really, as it relates to getting that message out to the consumer to drive them to our website properties. The consumers are out there looking for a solution to solve their specific problem. They're not necessarily looking for the brand first. They're looking to see what is out there that can provide them the solution. The brand is really secondary to that. So it's your goal to ensure that the Noblest brand shows up when patients are doing a search on whatever ailment they may have that you'll be able to service correct? That's exactly right. So when the consumers are searching for us, we spend a large amount of our marketing budget online. When they're searching for those specific solutions to their problems, they're going to find one of our properties. It's not going to be a nobilis focus. It will be the brand name that is built around that solution. How have your marketing efforts changed since the merger? Something that's great about the merger between the two companies is that we had a head start on Northstar from a marketing perspective. 
we've simply been doing it for longer. And as they acquired us and we brought their brands into our marketing platform, we've been able to integrate it quickly and since we have an end-to-end concierge model, from the very first time we generate leads, we have a very thorough process where the patients are managed through our system all the way actually past surgery. And so we're able to just plug those brands right into the marketing operations and the sales operations. So we're able to take that expertise and leverage it quickly with those brands. What will patient care and boutique surgical centers look like in the years ahead? What is your vision going forward? It's interesting because there's a continued transformation in healthcare and it's becoming more obvious now and we've seen this for several years now but there's a continued transformation to patients wanting to have more control and so when making a decision patients now use multiple channels and those channels are going to continue to expand and many of those channels are at some point different parts of the organization and so operationally the patient journey demands that brands have to be integrated across multiple functions within a business so you can deliver that coordinated and consistent experience and so that's where we have seen healthcare going it empowers the patient it helps give them a transparent process and we're going to continue focusing on that so we can plug in new brands to our processes that's what I think you're going to see some hospital systems are starting to finally figure out the importance of delivering relevant messages to their customers, which are their patients. And they've missed that staying the more traditional branding route for their hospital systems, just thinking the patients are going to show up. And that's really no longer the case. And Adam, what's your day-to-day like? What does the chief marketing officer of Noblest do on a regular basis? Overall, as the CMO, I direct all the strategic initiatives for marketing. And so within our organization, the way we structure the team is we have a group of brand managers who report to a brand director. So their day-to-day is to make sure that we're executing on our strategy for each brand. And then running parallel with the brand managers and brand directors are functional groups. So we have an insight team who is constantly doing research on the market. How can we speak very specifically to our patients? Our goal is to communicate one-to-one with the patients. And what I mean by that is each patient has a very specific need and when they find us we want to communicate that assuming we do have a solution that we are speaking specifically to that individual's need not an all things to all people so we spend a lot of time on how can we do this on the front end of our marketing and how can we do that all the way through the process so the insight team also helps deliver that content to the patient at various stages the second functional group there is as far as the team is organized is the support group from the standpoint of generating the content of copywriters, webmasters, coders for all our web properties. So ultimately that's how we have it structured. It makes for a very agile marketing team. So when we do bring in a new brand, we can quickly plug that in to that structure and launch it quickly. I've asked this question of other principals in your company. Now I'll ask you, what do you see for an expanded footprint for Noblis outside the areas you currently serve? Most of our growth has been really opportunistic. If we find a facility that makes sense or we have good physician partners that make sense in a location, that can be the driver of it. As we go forward from here, we will more aggressively look to expand that footprint. How marketing relates to that, we're very involved obviously from a marketing standpoint. There are a lot of 
people within the organization operationally that help us determine what might be a good market. Moving forward into next year, the expansion of our current brands will be aggressive, and a lot of that growth, too, may come from acquiring new facilities as well. What do you think in general accounts for the great success the company has seen? You know, I think looking at the success of what we've been able to build at Athos and the success with the Nobilis facility management and their expertise, they are absolute experts in running facilities, and that blend has really been a great one. But I think that the things from a marketing perspective that are interesting is we've proven that we've been able to build this model that's scalable and repeatable where we can bring in new brands quickly launch them. But just importantly, we've been very measured in building the internal team with the right talent. We have people on the marketing team, the complete integrated marketing team that we've been able to bring over from major national brands in various industries. And that's interesting because you bring talent into the fold that isn't tunnel vision on healthcare, and it helps the team have different viewpoints that you can take advantage of to ultimately build that marketing program. Consequently, that's led to a company culture that is critical, really, to the ultimate success of the company, and so that's been a really fun part of it. Is that a culture that you can spread to the rest of the industry? Or is your way of running your business proprietary? That's a great question. Well, one, it's a lot of fun because we, being very patient-centric in what we do, those principles have to start internally. And Chris Lloyd has done a fantastic job helping permeate the organization with really that mindset of we have to have people simply with a great attitude that are here to focus on making sure the patient has the absolute best experience possible. And once you see that, in action, it's pretty infectious. And so from there, it is pretty easy, I think, to transfer that to the growth of the organization. Well, Adam, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks again for joining me on the program. Great. Thank you, Ellis. I've been chatting with Adam Arnett, CMO of Noblest Health, trading on the TSX under the symbol NHC.to. That's NHC.to. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Wellgreen Platinum, trading in the U.S. under the ticker symbol WGPLF. Wellgreen Platinum is a North American mining, exploration, and development company focused on the active advancement of its 100% owned Wellgreen PGM nickel copper project and taking it toward production. Located in the Yukon, the Wellgreen project is one of the largest undeveloped PGM or Platinum Group metals deposits outside of South Africa and Russia. Greg, welcome to the program. Great to be back. You have some particularly exciting news that I'd like to share with our audience. Wellgreen just released a PEA, a Positive Independent Preliminary Economic Assessment, on the Wellgreen PGM Nickel Project. It states that when you go into production, the company will generate approximately 209,000 ounces of platinum, palladium, and gold, along with 73 million pounds of nickel and 55 million pounds of copper for the first 16 years of operation. How much cash flow will that bring into the company? 
that in context, if you're producing over 200,000 ounces of platinum, platinum, and gold, that makes you like number two in comparison with, uh, say, Stillwater in Montana outside of South Africa or Russia. So it's a very significant level of platinum group metal production. And on a nickel basis, you'd be a fairly significant producer of nickel as well. Combine that all together at kind of current prices, and you're looking at something along the lines of $300 million a year in operating cash flow over those 16 years. On top of that, believe it or not, that's only mining about 30% of our current resource. And so when you bring in the other 70%, which we've laid out as an opportunity in our study we've just published, that adds another 30 years of mine life, so stretching the life out to over 50 years of operation at those kind of production levels. With this compelling news just released, what is your next step with regard to Wellgreen? Well, this study is really the culmination of two years of work. We've raised close to $40 million over the last two years. Money has gone into the ground for drilling, for engineering, for metallurgical testing. And so this really is a substantive update and very detailed study project and, and lays out that it's, it's quite robust uh, in comparison with those similar projects. You know, our rates of return on this are in the mid-20s and, and even low 30s, depending on your metal price deck that you use. And so this project, it really stands out. And we've got a number of existing shareholder investors that have approached us to continue to assist the company to move forward. We've got new mining-focused large groups, uh, including you know some of the producers and smelting groups that are expressing interest in helping to take the project to the next level. With this PEA and with the fact that we ended the year with almost $10.5 million in cash, we're in great shape to launch into the pre-feasibility level of study, refining these studies that we've just put out, and being able to move towards de-risking the project and demonstrating its potential future cash flow. Is this potentially one of the largest stories in the Yukon, if not North America? Well, the, the project, as, as currently envisioned, starts out at 25,000 tons per day, which is not a huge operation, but it is a good-sized mine, and at the expansion phase in year five and six, it would go to about 50,000 tons per day. So it would become, at that stage, one of the larger operations in the region. There's several that are bigger, but this would be quite sizable. And in terms of platinum group metals and nickel specifically, it would be one of the biggest outside of the high political risk areas of, of South Africa and Russia. Now, the cost of production is considerably less than those other sensitive political risk jurisdictions that you just referred to, right? Yeah, most of the world's platinum and platinum is produced from deep underground mines in either South Africa or Russia. Combined, they're about 90% of the world's production. And those metals are used for catalytic converters is the number one use, but other industrial uses, investment value, and jewelry. But the catalytic converter market is really the biggest market. With such a heavy concentration of those metals being produced in those high political risk jurisdictions, a project like Wellgreen really stands out. This is something that I think really industry is going to be looking for sources of new metal with the excellent infrastructure that we have, the paved highway and the existing ports to the south of the project. We're really poised to be able to advance this project and see steady interest from people in terms of financing and advancing the project. So you've had conversations with both large producers and potential offtake candidates as well. Yeah, we're already seeing very significant interest in terms of both groups that might want to purchase the concentrate product where the metals are, are shipped for smelting, as well as larger producers that are either focused in the base metal business or the base metal and PGM or just on the PGM side of things. At this stage, that's pretty encouraging to see that level of interest in the company. If an entity were to come along and look at you as a takeout candidate, how would you respond to that? 
Well, it's a bit early for us to be looking at that. I mean, on a valuation basis right now, we are trading at a very attractive valuation from an investor's point of view, but we're nowhere near the ultimate potential valuation that we could see. On an enterprise value per ounce today, the precious metal producers are trading at about $200 an ounce on the ground. The advanced development stage companies are trading at around $50 per ounce of measured and indicated resource. That's your highest confidence resource. And the early development stage are averaging around 20 dollars per ounce. Well Green today is trading at around $4 an ounce if you don't include value for our base metals, nickel and, and copper. And if you include value for those, we're trading around $2 an ounce. So the opportunity for capital appreciation as we advance the project, de-risk it through the next couple of stages is quite significant compared to those average market valuations that you see for other comparable companies today. I'm sure that you as the CEO of Wellgreen feel that your company's share price is potentially undervalued considering everything that we've discussed over the past few weeks. Why do you believe that's the case? If you take a look at these valuations, they reflect the prevailing kind of sentiment in the metals market. They also reflect the stage of development and risk that you see for your various projects. Now, based on the fact that we've just completed this major economic study and we're moving into a pre-feasibility, if we look at the average valuations for companies at pre-feasibility being closer to $50 per measured indicated ounce, then we are substantially undervalued by that metric. I think if you look at the economics that are published in this PEA update and you apply those on kind of a a price to net asset value or or some other future cash flow metric, I think you could argue that the shares are very attractively valued from an investor's point of view in that there's excellent potential to see those values increase over time. Greg, what do you see going forth in the coming year with regard to news flow for the Wellgreen project? Well, the company ended the year with $10.5 million in cash, so we're in an excellent position to launch into the next round of studies. We're looking to probably start off our first phase of activity in the spring on the project. There should be a good flow of news, both from drilling, engineering, metallurgical testing. And we think that we're cautiously optimistic that the overall tone of the market for the metals complex is looking better than it has in a while. And that once we start to see investor interest returning to a sector that's gone through a three to four year bear market, that could be very, very attractive for investors to look at high quality names that are de-risking and in safe political jurisdictions like a well-green platinum. Greg, again, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more updates in the near future. Thanks for having us. We look forward to updating you again soon. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Wellgreen Platinum, trading on the TSX under the symbol WG and on the OTCQX as WGPLF. That's WGPLF. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Contact our sponsor companies directly. They're on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Today I'm speaking with Doug Diamond, the president and CEO of Gatekeeper Systems Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GSI.V. Gatekeeper employs integrated high-resolution video, voice, and GPS mapping for extreme mobile applications, increasingly vital for the documentation of law enforcement activity, as well as other security-focused efforts across North America. Doug, welcome to the program. How would you define Gatekeeper's market? The security market in general is divided up into a number of segments. 
all of those segments are expected to grow to approximately 23 billion by 2017. So it's a large market and it is growing. We reside in the mobile market. We define mobile as really anything that is moving. That could range from a school bus. There's 550,000 yellow school buses in North America and there's 30 to 50,000 of those buses manufactured every year. There's approximately 120,000 transit buses. There's taxis, there's aircraft, Coast Guard patrol boats, anything that moves, including law enforcement personnel and security personnel. We believe, based on the numbers that we've seen, there's approximately 30 million law enforcement and security personnel that at some point in time will be wearing body cameras. So that's really where our focus is. We are laser focused on those particular niche markets, including transit, school buses, transport, law enforcement, both with their vehicles and officers, as well as aircraft, Coast Guard, Department of Defense. Let's focus on the growing potential law enforcement aspect of your business. You touched upon that just now. With the recent controversy in areas such as Ferguson, Missouri, and New York City, I would imagine that there would be great interest in gatekeepers' body camera technology across the country. We've just recently introduced, I'm talking about in the last 12 months, a new high-definition body camera. There's been a lot of press in and around the events that have come out of Ferguson. That's driving a significant amount of press across the country. Gatekeeper had introduced the high-definition body camera for not only law enforcement, also security personnel in school districts, prisons, hospitals, corrections, a number of different marketplaces. Well, certainly the potential law enforcement market is huge. And as you said, law enforcement activities are seeing a great deal of press right now. Let's review another large market that you also addressed and are already seeing success in, school buses and your student protector system. Well, the student protector is a high-speed license plate reading system that was specifically designed to install on the outside of school buses to deter stop-arm violations. Stop-arm violations occur when a school bus comes to a stop, the stop-arm is engaged and children are either boarding the bus getting on or off. It's during those times that very dangerous situation can occur and that's when a car will pass that stop arm. In the U.S. this year, there's a projected 15 million stop arm violations and what's happened in the past is that kids have either been hit by these vehicles, there's been deaths that have occurred near misses. It's really driven new legislation in various states that allow counties or cities to use video from a school bus video system to issue a citation. How does this translate into prosecution of these violations and revenue for the company? Gatekeeper embarked on a development project approximately a year ago to design a unique system that can record a evidence pack whereby when such an incident occurs, our system captures the license plate, the vehicle uh, identification, GPS coordinates of where the bus was. We also record some other metadata that really creates this evidence pack for the county and the city as evidence to be used in court to issue a citation. Now the average citation in various states ranges anywhere from $250 to $750. Some states are a little higher, some are a little bit lower, but on average that's the 
range. So literally, in a short period of time, there's been this new market category that is created that has the potential to grow into a billion-dollar market category. And you already have a good footing in the market. Gatekeeper had seen this. We've been in the market for quite some time. We have approximately 3,500 customers in what's considered the K-12 market, the kindergarten, the grade 12 market. We're pretty excited about a number of factors. Number one, our technology can be used to increase safety in and around the school buses by deterring these incidents from happening. And then number two, of course, depending on what business model our customers choose, one of which is a um, the systems are paid for by the revenue that's collected from these citations. The equipment can be free of charge to the school district. So for example, Gatekeeper will provide the equipment, install it on the school buses, manage the entire program, and we can share in the revenue with the school district, the county, or the city, and of course ourselves. With Gatekeeper stock at near 19 cents, there's potentially a great deal of upside for the possible investor. Yeah, I'm a big believer. The last company I was involved in was about the same size as this one. It was eventually bought out by Honeywell for almost $11 a share. We believe that we are a great potential investment at these prices. And here's why. Gatekeeper Systems has a wide product line and we're engaged in several markets, one of which is the student protector. Well, Doug, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with the president and CEO of Gatekeeper Systems Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GSI.V. That's GSI.V. More questions? Contact Gatekeeper toll-free at 888-666-4833. That's 888-666-4833. And find a link to their website on the homepage of ours, ellismartinreport.com. We follow those that like to be followed. Follow them yourself at ellismartinreport.com. And I'm Ellis Martin. This will be the first of one of many rants typically given each week on the Ellis Martin Report where I will pick a subject and say whatever I think I feel like saying about it. And today, I'm going to talk about financial experts, so-called analysts, and pundits who like to talk about whatever's on their mind with regard to the market and market trends. Now, I've been covering the financial sector for more than 15 years now on this program or some version of this program, and I think it's important that I express my views on speculating with your hard-earned or, in some cases, easily earned cash. Whatever the difference is, it's cash and it's yours and you have it until you give it to someone else. So often I'll speak with expert analysts, whether it's related to precious metals like gold and silver or oil and gas with regard to energy, commodities that can be traded, whether on paper, ETFs, or what have you. Here's my take on all those years and my hundreds of interviews in this regard. Many, if not most of the predictions, say for a few, have been completely wrong throughout the history of my program. I'm not saying that I made the predictions. I can't make a prediction. I can only tell you that the sun's going to come up tomorrow in most places. Now, I'm not saying that the advice given by people I've interviewed was necessarily incorrect. It's always good to protect your assets. And many of these interviewees or guests have said that, to protect your assets in one form or another. That's something you should actually do. Now, I'm a broadcaster and a paid pundit with no scholastic educational background with regard to finance. I studied performing arts and telecommunications in college. I've been in radio forever. That's why I have an amazing voice. And a heavy dose of humility, I might add. Yes, I've had a career in business right alongside this radio show. It's true. I've been an entrepreneur on and off for almost 40 years. I don't look it. But am I a financial analyst? 
The answer is no. Have I interviewed them or those that have professed to be as such? The answer is yes. None of them predicted the recession coming beginning in 2008. None of the people that I interviewed. None of them saw the hit that precious metals would take three and a half years ago. And it's my contention that no one can accurately predict anything other than the sun will rise in the morning and set in the evening. It's quite possible that I may never interview another so-called financial expert on this program again. None of them are any more wrong or right than I am at predicting big or small occurrences in the market. I may as well interview myself. That day may come. The day may come where I may ask myself what I think about a particular issue. It will make just as much sense as me interviewing anyone else, or <laughs> at least in my mind. What will be the price of gold by May or June, Ellis? I'm not sure. I really can't say. Now, that's an honest answer free of speculation. Why speculate? Why predict? Anything is possible. If any eventuality is possible, how can you possibly predict a singular sole outcome? You can't with any continued accuracy, and any prediction that comes true is merely luck. I may never again interview another expert or official speculator, not when it comes to market trends, because looking back, many were wrong, and they got caught six feet under when the poppy seeds hit the fan. Where does this leave you as an investor or potential investor listening to this program? After all, this is a financially oriented program on a business channel. Now what? What do we do? Look at trends that are real and perhaps short term. Look at things you can see. Invest in real companies that generate profit. Invest in companies that make things people need and want. Why are healthcare companies like Nobilis, a sponsor of this program, doing so well right now? Because they generate income and have a brilliant management team at the helm, a management team that cares about patient satisfaction and customer service. They serve a market base that will always need their services. There will always be a need for health care. And in many cases, now it's mandated. And they serve that market well. Now, they are near a $5 stock. When they were first presented on this program just over a month ago, Noblis was a success story with a share price of near $4. Investors responded. Investors listening to this program responded by getting involved. The company did their homework as they built their business all the way through. And investors have been doing theirs by getting involved as shareholders. Is it a trend in play with Nobilis? Were there predictions to be made regarding this particular company early on? No one made predictions about the future of Nobilis. A prediction is an absence of facts with regard to market trends. Predictions are primarily based on probabilities, also based on past occurrences that existed in the past. It's therefore dangerous to speculate on what past so-called trends can lead to possible future eventualities. So ignore it. Find companies like Noblis at their varied stages of growth and invest in graduated amounts, some at the beginning, near a product launch, maybe, some during the launch itself, and some as the product takes off, spurring the company into profitability. And then throughout the existence of the company, as long as you are following an upward move and the company continues to generate profit, that's how you can win. You can indeed wait until that first trickle of probability makes its way into the black and then jump in when that company begins to be profitable. You can wait until it's a hard trend 
until that hard trend is set based on a need in the market that is being met. And then you can invest if you want. It's no longer a probability, it's an actuality. Investing in an actuality is much safer, potentially, than investing in a probability. But remember this, if you're listening to my words. Remember this. I'll say it again. I am not a financial advisor, and I have no educational background in that arena. I'm an entrepreneur, an occasional investor, a journalist, paid and unpaid, and an on-again, off-again entertainer of sorts. I'm not qualified to talk about financial matters. But again, many of those that are degreed in that arena and qualified to do so are not necessarily any more right or wrong than I could be when I speculate or make so-called predictions. I can predict this with a fair amount of accuracy. The sun will set today and it will rise in the morning. If you awake tomorrow morning, then you've successfully lived to see yet another day. There's no speculation in that. It's an actuality. It's a reality until that reality stops and becomes another one. Now, as an investor, I've actually made money when others speculate. I've gotten in when a commodity was lower than when I ultimately sold it based on what early speculators were doing and their own quote-unquote trends. But me not knowing when a trend begins or ends, because I believe that predicting can be a nutty thing to do, I wait until someone else begins to buy and someone else begins to sell. That's when I buy. That's when I sell. I let the market take its steps first. But knowing there is risk and uncertainty, what can I afford to lose here if my so-called bet is wrong? You have to be prepared both to win and lose. Be prepared for those two possibilities. Those two possibilities remain possible at the same exact time, actually. Life can go either way. The only sure prediction or probability is based on one's ability to safely time travel. I'm not sure about you, but I don't know anyone who's been able to pull that off yet. As fascinated as I am about the subject matter. Now, there are many investors who are winners. Millions of them. Find them. Ask them their secrets to winning. That's something I'll be focusing on next as a journalist and interviewer on this program. How have you made your money? What lessons have you learned that made you more successful in business and as an investor? What are your stories? How have you made money in a world of uncertainty? And how did you bank on that uncertainty to win? That is yet another angle. How about the folks that bought Apple or IBM when they were $4 stocks like Nobilis is now? It's perhaps the people that bought stocks under a dollar like Wellgreen or Gatekeeper or scores of others that may be winning. I'm not saying that any of these companies are sure things. I can't do that. There is no sure thing. That would be foolish and illegal. But if you can find the winners early on, then that's what you want to do. On your own. Listen, read, and watch. Watch what happens. Watch what is happening. Watch what is about to happen. Take a look at what happened previously and factor that into your own risk aversion model. I made that phrase up risk aversion model, or I stole it subconsciously from someone else. Makes no difference. If you want to buy something, anything, consider what its value might be to someone else later on down the line, because that's when you profit, when you sell something to someone else later at a price more than what you initially paid for it, or enough where you can say, I came out a winner on that deal. Personally, I find it fascinating with regard to investments that winning means selling to someone else at a higher price than what you may have paid for it when you invested. There's nothing wrong with it. It's legal in most cases. It's smart if you are a winner, but can it stand? I believe that those that speculated on $100 oil futures did well if they banked on the money of those 
that bought oil at those levels early on when oil was at the level it is at now, around $50 a barrel. Certainly, there's a great deal of hurt happening now in the arena of energy investments and gold and silver. But the market will come back, and by the way, I have no idea when. Did I just make a prediction? Kinda. Did I give a date? No. That's the best way to predict, by the way. Give a maybe or a kinda or a someday. Should you invest on a someday, people? I think not. Anyway, that's my rant for this week. I hope you enjoyed it and garnered something from it. Now here's motivational speaker and voice artist and a good friend of mine, Bob Lang, with his thoughts on personal productivity. As a guy who used to walk into a brokerage firm in a perfectly manicured suit, swing by the coffee, pick one up, sit down at my desk and start dialing for dollars, over time I began to notice that there were two types of people working in that office on the phones, some that were killing time and some that were making a killing. And it all came down to productivity. What do you do with the time you're allotted? If you walk in, grab your coffee, hit the phones, or take care of your business, you're going to be moving forward. If you're just there killing time till lunch, well, you should find something else to do with your career. Productivity measures can come at you like oh, an old-fashioned family recipe, or a bolt of lightning from the blue, or a religious epiphany. However it comes to you, you've only got so many hours in a day, so many days in a week, so many months in a year, and so many years in a life. Maybe one of the best ways to get a grip on your crazy out-of-control life is to stop. Just stop. Give yourself 15 minutes a day and start bringing to bear what your ideal productive day would look like. Mine seems to be based around three S's all the time. You've heard them before. The first thing you do in the morning is you shit, shower, and shave. For me, the next thing is email, and that's going to get saved for later, shit, canned, or stored. Okay, I promise that's the end of the beeps. As you move through the day, opportunities are coming at you left and right. Some are maintenance operations, some are progressive and moving forward, and some are dealing with tragedies of the past. So you're going to do one of three things. You're going to stand, you're going to sag, or you're going to sizzle. I recommend the latter. Sincerely, if you look at the number of hours you have in a day and how you can approach them best, where to put your exercise, where to put your email so that you can maximize your day, you're going to find yourself moving your life forward. I mean, there's a lot to do in a day and it starts the night before. Build a routine of having everything set to go in the morning so you could fly out of the house as if it were on fire and not miss a beat. Not forget a paper, not forget your keys, not forget your glasses. They're in the same place, same time, every day. A lot of you already do this, but some, <laughs> not so much. Bounce out of bed and hit your first three S's, and then reach out to shake hands with the rest of the world. In the Franklin Covey system, take your tasks and break them into A's and B's and C's. I never get C's. <laughs> They're all A's and B's. There's always a fire going somewhere. As you get into the swing of the day, you need to have certain things built into your routine to help you through the stressful periods and help you deal with the barrage of insane things that happen. Whether it's a prayer, a walk around the block is usually the best. Give yourself enough time between taskings so that you can take care of your own stress levels and your ability to deal with the next thing coming. I'm a fan of the magazine Fast Company, and every year they seem to do an issue about the most productive people. And these people have incredible schedules, starting at 6 in the morning and sometimes going around the clock till 2 in the morning. Others have a 7 or 8 o'clock start and a 6 to 7 quit time. 
different people have different ways of getting to their productive routine. But the thing they seem to have in common is they understand what needs to be done. They go after doing it, and they use their tools to help them cope, whether it's assistance or an app on their phone or walk around the block. Now note, I said a tool, not a crutch. Some people have used drugs, alcohol, sex, any number of things to quote-unquote help them through their day, which they're they're actually taking away from their productivity. Find something that's non-destructive, positive for you, and build it into your routine so that you can cope with the meteorites that come flying at you all day long. Another critical tool to add to your bag in becoming productive is, is, is to say no. I can't. No. Learn to say no. And you can say it in a nice way. Your project sounds extremely interesting. However, right now, I don't have the resource of time to devote to it. No. <laughs> After a while, saying no gets a little easier. Just say it nicely with kindness and compassion because you'll be surprised how productive you can be when you approach the rest of the world with kindness, compassion, and an interest in their success. Your success follows right along with it, many times. But you always want to be kind because kindness and compassion are a really great way to become productive. You get more people to help you. Time management is the most critical part of being productive. Now we're coming to the end of the day and you've got to handle the things that just must be dealt with today. You're going to give some support to the things that are going to carry over to tomorrow. And then give a soothing hand to the things that didn't quite work out for the day. And settle the items that should have completed today that you're not going to mess with ever again. Now it's time to get out the door. Time to transition from work to real life. The first is slow down. You're approaching your real life. Next is socialize. Call your family. Call your friends. Let them know you survived. And the last thing in the day is sleep. Make sure you get a good night's sleep, because tomorrow you're going to go be productive again. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Bob Lang. Find out a bunch more things to find out about at that guy's website, ellismartinreport.com. This is the second in a series of discussions about uncovering personal truths. I'm Ellis Martin. Joining me now to continue this discussion is Dr. Farshad Burgess, otherwise known as Dr. Chris. Dr. Chris is known throughout the world. He's a philosopher and a practitioner of the healing art of chiropractic medicine here in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Chris, it's nice to have you with us today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me over. And it's such an honor to be here and talking about my views of different subjects. Today we are going to talk about the process of self-discovery, Dr. Chris. That's right. It's such an important thing for everyone to be able to do. Actually, it's very important for us to make sure that we know ourselves, because once we know ourselves better, we can treat people better. People will treat us better and respect us better, and and we can achieve a lot more in life. Dr. Chris, what do you think the first step in self-discovery is in finding out who we are? First of all, it is very important for us to know why we are here, who we are, why we are here, why we live here, and um, those sort of things. And uh, this is my personal opinion. I think that we have been created for a purpose. All of us, we all have a purpose in life. We are here for a reason in this world. So most people during the course of their lives have not sat down and taken a look at their main purpose for being here, which is crucially important to experience that happiness that I've been referring to. That's right. To me, I think that probably 90% of people don't know who they are and what their purpose in life is. 
shouldn't we know what the purpose in life is and who we are each day before we step out into the world? Otherwise, we're just running around randomly, trying to avoid things and stay out of the way of everyone else and just haphazardly running through life, which is really what's going on, isn't it? Absolutely. We all must have a goal in our life, an extraordinary goal and purpose in life, something that is universal, something that is achievable. If we do that, then we are going to be a lot happier in life. What about this goal, Dr. Chris? I want to make money. I want to buy a big house. I want to have a couple of cars and maybe get married. Oh, that's wonderful. But so what? Okay, let's say that you got married, you have a wonderful marriage, and then you achieve that. Or let's say that you, your goal is to have a $5 million house. Okay, you got it. Think, so what? What are we going to do now? So you're saying that that specific goal of acquiring a, a $5 million house by itself is not really a life goal, and it doesn't tell me anything about who I am except that I don't know what my goal is, what I'm supposed to be doing in this life. The thing is that these sort of goals are great, but these are sub-goals. We must have a greater goal in our life. These could be sub-goals to achieve that. We must set it just a lifelong goal in our life. That makes us a lot more happier. How do I pick that goal? How do I find out who I am? How do I discover what it is that's going to make me happy? First of all, you must sit down for yourself and you must discover yourself. You must know who you are. We all must know what our shortcomings are and where we have come from. Certainly our ancestry also helped too. Who were our ancestors? And we can begin from there. It's very easy yet very complicated process. Well, we need to make it an easy process so that most people can take positive steps without the process of going through deep and costly professional psychological analysis or sitting through a focus group of their friends asking for critiques. Let's simplify this process somehow. What's the first step that someone should take to discover who they are? The first step to make sure that you are honest with yourself. The honesty is the most important thing. And then you just sit down and think. I think that what helps a lot is to have um, you know a few pieces of paper handy and then write down all these things. We can start by just writing down all the positive things about ourselves. What are the things that we like about ourselves? We just write it down. Do we need to do this every day? Should we just continually take a look at ourselves or is it a one-time action? Let's just do it one time. One time. Yes, and then if necessary, we can always go back and change. Is this a short list? Is it a long list of maybe a hundred things or as many things as we can think of? Everything that you can think of. It can, be, can become actually like a book because when I'm sitting down right now, when I'm just thinking, I might not know a lot of things, but when I sit down and think about it, and um, write down everything, then maybe I'll have many, many, many different things. The most important thing is to just to be neutral and to have a clear mind when, when we do this. Actually, this is something that uh, I have picked up from a very famous psychiatrist, Dr. Pezeshkian, and he has taught me this, and it's incredible, and it works really good. We just sit down and write all the positive things about ourselves, things that we really enjoy about ourselves. Write it down. 
Once we've written everything down and made a positive list of our positive attributes, what do we do with that list? Well, this is not done yet. Okay. Then I think probably we it's a very good idea to wait one day. The next day we sit down, you know, whenever we have free time and write down a list of all the negative things about ourselves, things that we do not like about ourselves. All right, so on the first day, we've made a list of positive things that we like about ourselves, and then the next day, we've made a list of the negative things that we don't like about ourselves. We have these two lists. Now what do we do? The next day, we sit down again, we start writing. We write down the goals that we have met for the last 10 years, whatever that we have done and we have finished. For example, if we have gone to college and finished um, our four-year college or whatever, and we just write down everything that we have done during the last 10 years and finished. Then we go on to all the things that we have not finished for the last 10 years. What are the things that we have started and we have not finished? Just Go wild and think. Go deep inside yourself and dig. Believe me, you can come up with a lot of things. And then you will write down everything that all the goals that you are going to have for the next 10 years that you want to achieve. This will help you understand yourself. So basically, we're talking about three days of review. The first day, we're writing down positive attributes about ourselves. The second day, we are writing down all the negative attributes that we can think of about ourselves. And the third day, we're writing down a list of all of our accomplishments that we've started and finished over the last 10 years that we're proud of. And on that same third day, we're making a list of things that we've started and not finished over the last 10 years. Of course, and that could be the fourth day, actually. Okay, that makes it a four-day process then, basically. Yes, that can be a four-day process. This is the process of actual self-discovery here. Yes, definitely. On the fourth or fifth day, when you gather all, the, all these and you go to the beginning and you look at everything, you will find many things about yourself. Just do this. You won't be disappointed. All right, well, that's your assignment. Make a list of all the positive things that you can think of about yourself on day one, and you can begin this today. Tomorrow, make a list of all the negative things that you can think of about yourself. On the third day, make a list of all the accomplishments that you've started and finished during the last 10 years. And on the fourth day, make a list of all the things that you've started and not finished over the last 10 years. And on day five and maybe day six, evaluate everything that you've written over the previous four or five days about yourself. And this should reveal a great deal to you on the road to your own self-discovery. Do I have it right? Yes, you got it. Dr. Chris. The technique that we've just described for beginning a path of self-discovery is for those of us who perhaps have not done so our entire lives. It's clearly for adults, those of us with a past, those of us who can look back 10 years or more and take stock of ourselves, so to speak. When is the most optimum time, the best time to begin self-evaluation or analyzing our lives? It's a great question. Actually, I think it's a very good idea to start this when we are teenagers, even like 10 or 11 years old, when we know a little bit about world. If we can have classes that teach us this, it would be great. We would have a wonderful world. Isn't the age of 10 or 11 a little too young to have to sit down and face the hard issues of what we like or don't like about ourselves? 
Or we just make it some sort of fun thing to do with our children? We can make it a very fun thing to do. That's, what is better than that? If we can know ourselves better in, um, in our early ages, we can take advantage of our life. Don't you think so? Oh, yes. I believe so. And we will continue this discussion with Dr. Chris in an upcoming segment about uncovering personal truths. I'm Ellis Martin. What? It's over? No, it can't be true! What will I do? What will I say? What? Oh, oh, this. (laughs) Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Then they run right back to work and get jiggy with getting busy. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. For Ellis Martin, this is Cool Voice Guy. Ciao, babies. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.